0: In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'll talk about what the dirtiest parts of an aircraft cabin are. Then, for the main segment, I'm going to be looking at five unique air travel experiences out there. Welcome to episode 31 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. Let's get started! What are the dirtiest parts of an airplane cabin? During the COVID-19 pandemic, airlines introduced extensive cleaning and disinfecting routines for their aircraft cabins, and this meant that planes were probably the cleanest that they've ever been overall. Now that airline operations and procedures have largely returned to how they were pre-pandemic in many parts of the world. Airline cabins are probably also getting germier like they were before. A 2015 study by Travelmath.com collected and tested samples from 5 airports and 4 flights on 2 major US carriers. It found that the dirtiest surfaces on board were the tray table, the overhead air vents, the lavatory flush button, and seatbelt buckles. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or CBC's Consumer Walk Series Marketplace did something similar in 2018, analyzing over 100 samples on 18 different flights. In that study, they found that the most contaminated surface was the headrest, followed by the seatback pocket, lavatory handle, tray table, and seatbelt. There really aren't a ton of surprises here. These are all high touch areas that aren't necessarily cleaned often. Aircraft cleaning between flights is often mostly aesthetic and cosmetic, and there often isn't really time or the proper equipment to wipe down and clean every surface. Planes might not go through a full comprehensive cleaning for weeks at a time. Some surfaces, like the inside of a seat back pocket, are also just quite difficult to clean. The dirtiness of the seat back pocket is made worse by the fact that it's an easy place for people to store things, which unfortunately also means that things like used diapers and vomit bags also sometimes get placed in them. All that being said, even if all that sounds a bit unsettling, an airline cabin isn't necessarily dirtier than any other public place you might go to. If you consider how many people use things like public door handles, food court tables, movie theater seats, or public transit handrails, and then think about how often those get cleaned, the airplane cabin probably doesn't seem that germy anymore relatively speaking. If you want to do a bit of disinfecting yourself though, you can always bring disinfecting wipes and hand sanitizer on board with you when you fly. Did you know that you can submit questions for the first part of Flying Smarter episodes? If you have a question that you want to be answered on the podcast, get in touch on social media, there are links in the episode description, or visit flyingsmarter.com forward slash contact. From there, you can send a message or even record your question. Did you know that there's a music album called Sounds of the International Airport Restrooms? And yes, it's exactly what it sounds like. In 1998, a musical group called the Golding Institute released an 8-track album called Sounds of the International Airport Restrooms. I've listened to some of it, and it's exactly what the title makes it sound like. Field recordings from airport restrooms, with flushing noises and all, The tracks are different airport names and presumably feature sounds from those airports like honolulu international airport hawaii and auckland international airport auckland new zealand in this main segment i'm going to be doing something a little bit different Instead of focusing on one topic or speaking with one guest, I want to share five different unique experiences in air travel. I've actually thought of a lot more than the five of these, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about them on Flying Smarter, but I haven't really had a good way to share them on the podcast until now. Of course, I'm hoping that these tidbits will be informative and interesting, but I also hope that they inspire you a bit to both travel more and to better enjoy and appreciate the air travel experience. The first one that I want to talk about is the United Airlines Island Hopper. The Island Hopper is a route between Honolulu and Guam that stops at several small islands in the Marshall Islands and the federal states of Micronesia, both of which are independent countries. The route is famous among aviation enthusiasts due to its remoteness and uniqueness, but it's also a lifeline for locals. The flights offer some fantastic views of the ocean and various pacific islands as well as the opportunity to visit some pretty unique destinations. Even transiting passengers have the opportunity to deplane at most airports while the plane is on the ground. The route consists of 6 legs, and I'll go through them from east to west, but of course the route operates the other way eastbound as well. The first leg is from Honolulu to Majuro Atoll in the Marshall Islands. It's approximately 5 hours westbound and four and a half hours eastbound. Between these two airports, the flight crosses the international dateline. After Majuro, the flight continues onto Kwajalein, with a flight time of around an hour. Kwajalein is home to an active military base, and there are therefore some restrictions. Passengers can only arrive and deplane here with permission, and photography is not permitted. The next stop is Kosare, in the federal states of Micronesia. This leg is also about an hour, but the island hopper only stops at Kosare twice a week. The next stop after Kosrae is Pompeii. When the island hopper stops in Kosrae, the flight to Pompeii is approximately 1 hour long, and when it doesn't stop in Kosrae, the flight between Kwajalein and Pompeii is around 2 hours. Then there's another 1 hour leg to Chuuk, which is in the federal states of Micronesia, and finally the route ends in Guam. The flying time between Chuuk and Guam is about an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes each way. The route was first operated by Air Micronesia, which is later renamed Continental Micronesia after Continental Airlines gained full ownership of the airline. Since Continental merged with United in 2010, the route is now operated by United. At the time of publication of the episode, the route is operated 3 times a week, twice with a stop in Kosrae. There are tons of interesting things about this route. While some passengers take the route for the sake of experiencing the flight, it's also possible to visit many of the islands as a tourist. However, there are also lots of people who rely on this route as a lifeline, including locals on the islands and US military personnel. Not only is it an important means of transportation for people, but the flights carry important cargo as well. For example, between Chuk and Guam, dozens of coolers are generally loaded into the cargo hold. This is because people from Chuk will transport fish to Guam, while on the way back, the coolers will carry meat. Because of the remoteness and the uniqueness of the route, there are also some operational complexities. For example, there are two sets of pilots on board. One pair operates the longest leg between Honolulu and Majuro, while the other pair operate the rest of the shorter flights. The pilots who aren't flying sit in the first row of business class, in seats 1A and 1B and because of some provisions in the united pilot contract, these seats have to recline 160 degrees, which means that seats 2A and 2B can't be sold because the pilot seats recline into them. The planes themselves are United Boeing 737-800s. The aircraft serve 2 year rotations on the island hopper route before they have to be returned to the mainland since the salt from the ocean takes a toll on the engines. The flight also has a mechanic on board and some spare parts in case issues arise at any of the small island airports. In terms of the passenger experience, the cabins are configured with seatback screens, but there's no Wi-Fi. Like other United 737-800s, business class and economy plus passengers also have in-seat power. Meals are served on the first and last legs for all passengers, and the flights can be booked like any other United flight using either cash or points. The airports on each of the islands generally have a single runway and a small aging terminal. Fire trucks are required to be on standby and available at each airport. I've read reports of the island hopper flights being cancelled for a week because a fire truck on one of the islands was out of service. Boarding at the island airports are conducted using ramps as none of them have jet bridges. The island hopper is truly a unique air travel experience but it's also an essential service for local residents while also being an amazing opportunity for visitors to see some of the world's most beautiful and remote areas. The next experience that I want to talk about is the onboard shower facilities on Emirates' Airbus A380s. As I discussed in episode 26, the A380 is the world's largest passenger airliner and it has led to some pretty interesting passenger experience innovations. One of these is the onboard shower. Emirates is actually one of two airlines in the world to operate onboard showers, with the other being fellow UAE airline Etihad. However, Emirates has a much larger A380 fleet, so I'm going to focus on their product. Emirates A380s with first class have two shower suites at the front of the upper deck. The airline calls them shower spas. The shower spas each feature a toilet, a sink, and a shower. Passengers who have used one generally seem surprised at how spacious it is. The floor is heated, and passengers can adjust the floor temperature using a control on the wall. There are also toiletries and a hairdryer, as well as some reminders that you're still on a plane. There's a screen with a moving map, there's an oxygen mask in the shower, and the toilet is an airplane toilet of course. When there's turbulence, there are speakers in the shower spa that will tell you what to do. The good news is, you don't have to return to your seat in the middle of a shower. Instead, passengers are instructed to sit down on a bench in the shower and hold onto the handrail. The shower itself is fully enclosed with a small bench. Each passenger gets 5 minutes of hot water. While that might not seem like a lot of time, the 5 minutes applies to the time during which the water runs. Passengers can turn the shower on and off as much as they want, meaning that the shower can last much longer than 5 minutes. In practice, it means that you can turn the shower on for a bit, turn it off to apply soap and shampoo, and then turn it back on to rinse afterwards. Passengers are allocated 30 minutes total in the shower spa. Emirates also has a shower attendant on board in addition to the regular flight attendants. The shower attendant performs tasks like refreshing the shower after each use, stocking and folding towels, and making appointments and coordinating the use of the shower. Showering on a plane is truly something special. The fact that this is even possible shows just how far we've come in the development of air travel products and the passenger experience. For more on the Airbus A380, and other passenger experience developments brought on by the aircraft, check out episode 26, where I go into a deep dive of the world's largest passenger aircraft. If you want to see what the shower looks like, I'll be posting a photo on the Flying Smarter social media pages in the coming 2 weeks. In fact, I'm going to try to post pictures of as many of these unique experiences as I can, so be sure to follow Flying Smarter on Facebook and Twitter, as well as on Instagram, where there's even more content in our Instagram story. You can find our social media links in the episode description. The next thing that I want to talk about is Southwest Airlines' boarding and seating process. Now, If you fly frequently with Southwest, you'll probably be familiar with most of what I'm going to say, but I'm also going to try to share some tips and tricks as well. For anyone who hasn't flown Southwest before, the boarding and seating processes used by the airline are quite different from what you'll find with most other carriers. Southwest is one of the world's largest airlines, and it operates over 700 planes to over 100 destinations throughout the United States, Central America, and the Caribbean. It has a reputation as a family friendly airline with a fun and friendly attitude and therefore it has a strong level of customer loyalty. One of the things that also makes the airline unique is its boarding process. The airline has open seating, meaning that passengers simply choose any available seat upon boarding. However, it's not simply first come first served. Instead of being assigned a seat, passengers are assigned a boarding group designated by a letter, and a boarding position designated by a number from 1 through 60. So passengers will have boarding combinations printed on their boarding passes, such as A32 or C10. Southwest Airlines gates have large markers with numbers printed on them. These basically direct people where to stand based on what's printed on their boarding pass. For example, when Group A is called, those with A1 to A5 would stand on one side of the first marker and those with A6 to A10 would stand behind them on the other side of the marker, and so on, and so on. Passengers will often also talk to each other to see what their numbers are to ensure that they're standing in the right spot. Of course, there are some exceptions to the order. Pre-boarding is available before Group A for passengers who require assistance, active military, those with Southwest Airline status, and families with children aged 6 and under can board between Groups A and B if they weren't already in Group A. You can generally select any seat available, but you have to meet certain age and physical requirements to sit in an exit row, as is the case with any other airline. So if there aren't assigned seats, and your seating fate depends largely on your boarding position, then the all-important question is, how do the boarding positions get assigned? If you purchase the ticket in Southwest's most expensive fare class, called Business Select, you'll get a position between A1 and A15. Those with what's called A-list status, which is the name for status in Southwest frequent flyer program, are supposed to get the next best available boarding numbers. If you're not inclined to pay for a business select fare and you don't have status with Southwest, there are also some ways to improve your boarding position. Check-in opens online 24 hours prior to departure. The earlier you check-in, the better your boarding position will be, so checking in right at 24 hours is the way to get the best boarding position possible without paying extra. If you're willing to pay a bit more though, there are two options. Firstly, you can purchase early bird check-in, which means that Southwest will automatically check you in 36 hours prior to departure, which should generally get you a pretty good boarding position. The second way is to purchase upgraded boarding on the day of the flight, which allows you to purchase positions in A1 to A15 if they are available. Some Southwest co-branded credit cards also offer priority boarding perks that can be used to improve your boarding position. You're also not supposed to reserve seats for other people. If you're traveling in a group but don't have adjacent boarding positions, you can either board separately or board together with the lowest boarding position. One thing to note as well is that on many airlines, passengers are in a rush to get on board in order to get overhead bin space and to avoid having to gate check their carry on bag. This tends to be much less of a problem on Southwest compared to other airlines because Southwest allows all passengers to check two bags for free. Now people either seem to love or hate the Southwest boarding process. For passengers who are new to Southwest, it can be overwhelming or confusing at first. Whether you love it or hate it though, there's no doubt that it is a unique process in the world of air travel. The next experience is actually a thing of the past, but it's fairly special and I wanted to talk about it briefly before going on to some similar experiences that you can still try today. Between September of 2009 and March of 2020, British Airways operated a service called Club World London City between London City Airport and New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport. The flights were operated by Airbus A318 aircraft, which is a relatively rare narrow-body passenger jet that typically seats around 20 passengers. However, British Airways' only two A318s were configured with just 32 business class seats. Until 2016, These A318s operated two daily flights, but the frequency then dropped down to one flight daily. Westbound flights made a fuel stop at Shannon Airport in Ireland, where passengers on the earlier flight in the day, which is the one that remained when the frequency dropped down, could clear US customs and immigration through the preclearance facility there. Preclearance allows passengers to arrive in the US as domestic passengers, and I talk more about how it works and why it exists in episode 23. The eastbound flight was non stop. Although the stop in Shannon increased the total travel time, the location of London City Airport, the later bag drop cutoff time at the airport compared to Heathrow, and the existence of pre clearance in Shannon made the experience worth it for some travelers. Plus, it was a pretty special experience to fly across the Atlantic in a plane with a maximum of 31 other passengers. The service was suspended in March of 2020 with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and British Airways fully cancelled the route later that year. There's no doubt that the passenger experience was quite exclusive with business class dining and 3 cabin crew for at most 32 passengers. However, the onboard product was also becoming a little bit dated. The seats were lie flat but they were slightly angled, entertainment was offered on iPads, not all seats had direct aisle access, and there was no in-flight Wi-Fi. While it was still a nice experience, some of these things were just no longer that competitive with other products out there. Now you may remember that I said at the beginning that even though this service no longer exists, there are some similar experiences that you can try out there. I don't think there's anything quite as unique and exclusive as Club World London City, but there is another airline that offers business class only flights across the Atlantic. La Compagnie is a French airline that operates two Airbus A321 NEOs configured with 76 business class seats each. They offer flights between Newark Airport and Paris, Nice, and Milan. The other special thing about Club World London City is that the flights carry the flight numbers of BA1 through 4. Flight numbers 1 and 2 are often used by an airline on their flagship routes, and there are many of these that you can try out. Airlines often put their nicest, newest, or largest aircraft on these routes. Examples of flight number one include American Airlines Flight 1 from New York JFK to Los Angeles, Qantas Flight 1 from Sydney to London Heathrow with a stop in Singapore, and WestJet Flight 1 from Calgary to London Gatwick. The final experience that I want to talk about today is JetBlue Mint Dining. The New York-based airlines offers an industry-leading business-class product on some of its A321s called Mint. When Mint was first launched in 2013, JetBlue became one of the first airlines to offer lie-flat seats on a narrow-body aircraft, and the product became one of the most competitive in the transcontinental US market. Mint is available on JetBlue's transatlantic flights, as well as some transcontinental routes such as Boston to San Francisco and Los Angeles to New York. Mint can also be found on some Caribbean routes. The unique experience that I want to talk about is the food. Many airlines offer fantastic catering in their premium cabins, but JetBlue has a concept that allows the airline to differentiate itself. A typical business class meal on an airline consists of an appetizer with maybe a second choice of appetizer, a selection of 2-5 to five main course options depending on the airline and the route, and 1 or 2 dessert options. Of course, the offerings vary by airline, but generally speaking, the major decision for passengers is a choice of main course. With JetBlue, however, they've come up with an interesting concept. JetBlue mint menus have 4 or 5 dishes, and passengers are invited to select up to 3 options, a la carte style. Not only does this make each meal very customizable, but it's also a fun way for the airline to stand out. To give you an example, the eastbound lunch and dinner options for February and March of 2023, when this episode is being published, are two different types of salad a kale and spinach lasagna, chicken Milanese, and lamb shoulder. Passengers then get vanilla gelato served as a dessert with strawberry jam and devil's fruit cake crumb. On transatlantic flights, a second lighter meal is also served. On eastbound flights from February to April of 2023, for example, Passengers can choose 2 out of 3 breakfast small plates, with the choices being strawberries, coconut yogurt, and a smoked salmon frittata. This has been a particularly enjoyable main segment to put together, as I got to talk about passenger experience and explore a whole bunch of different things. I've been wanting to tell you about experiences like these for a while, and I'm glad I found a way to do so. Hopefully, you found them as interesting as I do, and have found some usefulness or inspiration from them. I would love to do another episode like this down the line, since I have more ideas of unique air travel experiences that I'd like to share. I'm always open to feedback, so feel free to reach out to me via social media or our website at flyingsmarter.com. There are lots of things that I talked about in this episode that you may want to see visually, so I'll be sharing photos on Flying Smarter's social media accounts over the next two weeks. That brings us to the end of episode 31 of Flying Smarter. Please take a minute and follow us on social media, as that's where I'll be posting photos to show you some of the things that I talked about during this episode. It's also where you'll find things like podcast updates and sneak peeks on a regular basis. Flying Smarter is on Facebook and Instagram at Flying Smarter and on Twitter at Flying underscore Smarter. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.